Good morning, Sun West. How are you guys doing? It's good to be with you. Uh, so this uh, last year, ooh, let me just adjust that right away. Uh, this last year, I turned 40. Some of you are cheering. Some of you, I hear like condolences, like I, I hear the, oh, I'm so sorry sounds. Uh, I, know you, I know what you guys are thinking. Some of you are thinking, oh, 40, that's so young. Uh, there's some of you that are thinking, 40, that's so old. And this is, this is what happens. I, you know, I, I, I looked up online the other day and I heard that uh, 81.75 is the average life expectancy of a male growing up in Canada. Um, and so if I were to put my life on a measuring, 81.75, right there, uh, this would represent the average expectancy, Lord willing, of my life. And at uh, 41.75, I am almost, almost exactly at midlife. Um, and there's this thing you've probably heard about called midlife crisis. You guys, you guys heard about this? How many of you guys have experienced that? Anybody? Hands up. Uh, there's also three-quarter life crisis, quarter life crisis. Some of the young adults are going through quarter life crisis. Uh, but Lord willing, if I live to be 80.75, I am at midlife. And it's interesting what happens at midlife is uh, you begin to maybe ask questions that you've asked most of your life, but you ask them with... Uh, different level of intensity or seriousness. You start to think about things that maybe were at the back of your mind, they come to the forefront of your mind. Uh, you start to resonate with passages like Psalm uh, 39, where it says, uh, life is but a breath. And you're like, okay, I'm starting to see that. Ecclesiastes 2 has, these, uh, has this phrase that says, all life is meaningless, chasing after the wind. You're like, oh, welcome to kickoff. This is awesome. Uh, a chasing after the wind. And you start to ask these questions about what is the purpose of life? And, and throughout history, there's been uh, legends and myths that talk about the fountain of youth. And you don't think about that much when you're youth, but as you get older, you're like, the fountain of youth, that sounds really, really good. You know, a number of years ago, I saw a, da- a Dodge Caravan coming right by here by the church, and it had spinner rims on it. And I said, oh, there's a guy who's in his mid-40s. He's... Uh, He's hit that midlife crisis, Dodge Caravan, spinner rims. Like, is it, if that's not the picture of midlife crisis, I don't know what it is. And I'm sorry if that was you. No, no judgment. No judgment here. But you start, to, you, you start to figure out, how do I live life to its fullest? And you start to think about, maybe I need to be in a different house. You know, maybe I need a different car. Uh, maybe I need skinny jeans. No, that changed. Now I need baggy jeans. And you're trying to keep up with the times, and it's always changing. If you pay attention on social media, there's this thing called the echo chamber, and it starts to put, pay attention to the algorithms. And you know, that's a, that's a powerful mirror, right? If you pay attention, what's in your newsfeed? If you just scroll through your newsfeed and you say, well, what is my newsfeed telling me about myself? And then you start to see things like vacation destinations, new, ha- new house listening, new cars, new hobbies, hair growth products, and like all of these things. It starts to become a mirror of what you think about. I think all of us on some level are looking for everlasting life. And there's so much that means. And, and, that, and that's why the, the myth of this fountain of youth, the legend of the fountain of youth, that it's, it's gone on for centuries because it's part of the human experience that we all long for everlasting life. We all long for life to continue to go 
forward, for there not to be an end, for there not to be a life expectancy point. And more than that, we actually long for not just everlasting life, but a certain quality of life. And so the human experience is that we have this thirst, we have this longing for a certain type of life. And we take that thirst, we take that hunger to different places, don't we? And best case scenario, we take that hunger and thirst to things and to wells that, um, you know, they, they, we, we take it and we drink and then we have to keep going back because even though those things are somewhat satisfying, they never quite fulfill us enough. And so we go back to these wells in life looking for meaning and looking for purpose. That's like best case scenario. Worst case scenario, we have these desires and the thirst to have a certain type of life and we take these desires into the wrong direction. We start to look for shortcuts to fulfill these desires and we make bad decisions because we want life and we want meaning and we want to be loved and we want to be accepted and we want to have purpose and we want to be successful. And so we start to make decisions in our life that actually might end up hurting us or other people because of those desires and those longings that we all have as human beings. C.S. Lewis talks about how if there, in creation, that there is a desire, um, the created order is that something has been put in place for that desire. And so if ducklings want to learn how to swim, there's water. If birds are hungry, there's worms. If babies are thirsty, there's milk. If men and women have the sexual drive, God created us with the gift of sex. There's all these drives and desires that we have as human beings. And in the created order, this is C.S. Lewis's argument that there's something that's been put in place for us to quench that thirst. And C.S. Lewis says this, he said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And if he's right, and if the Bible is true and that there is everlasting life, if we don't understand where to find that life, we will spend our lives searching and longing and going back to wells, looking to satisfy our thirst, but always being left wanting. And in fact, in our drive to find this fountain of youth, to find this everlasting life, we can start to make some pretty destructive decisions that hurt ourselves and hurt others. The Bible actually has a fountain of life story. That story is found in John chapter 4. I'm going to read that story, and then we're going to walk through the story together. This is what it reads. In John chapter 4, it says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. You'll notice as we read the book or the story that, that John, the author of the story, is telling us all these background pieces. The reason being is that he was writing both to a Jewish audience and to people who weren't Jewish, who were Gentiles. And so the Jewish audience would have known there's socially acceptable things, uh, and Jesus is breaking those social, social, socially acceptable things. 
but the Gentile audience wouldn't have known that. And so uh, John is helping clue, us clue in. So you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan Roman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not so associate with Samaritans, John tells us. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw off with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you, have na- the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and the truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain all of this to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then the disciples returned. They were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking to her? Then leaving her jar, her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Every time we read a story about Jesus... There's always at least two applications or things that we need to pay attention to. The first thing is when Jesus is interacting with somebody and Jesus being God with flesh on, we see the posture, the message, the proclamation of God to us as humans, and we can see what God is like and how he is approaching us, what he has to offer us. And so we pay attention to that. There's also another application where uh, if, you are, have you, if you've chosen to follow Jesus, where we pay attention to how Jesus acts and how he lives and what he says, because we're not just called to receive from Jesus, we're also called to partner with him and do what he wants to do in the world. And so all these two, thi- these two things are all happening every time we read a story about Jesus. And so as we go through the story, some of you, we'll need to pay attention to what is Jesus offering? Do I want to receive what he's giving me? For others, as we go through the story, you'll need to think, how is Jesus living? And what does this mean for how I ought to live? Now let's start where the story ends. The story ends with 
this woman who has this encounter with Jesus. And she runs away. She goes back to town after this encounter, and she believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, which is uh, the one who the Jews were waiting on that was going to come and save and redeem his people. And so she, she believes that Jesus is him. And so she runs back to the town to tell them. And the text says that some of them believed based on this woman's testimony. But there's others who didn't believe based on her testimony. And they invited Jesus to stay with them. And then it, the text says many more believed after they had encountered Jesus, after they had heard Jesus for themselves. And I believe this is a, a beautiful description when we're, at, when we're on our faith journey, maybe you're here and you're, you're wondering about Jesus, that you're having doubts and you're wrestling and you hear people talk about Jesus. You, have, you hear testimonies of Jesus. And for some of you to hear a testimony about Jesus and how he's changed someone's life is enough. It's enough to give you faith. But for others, it's not enough. For, for the other people in town that came and heard this woman talk about Jesus, they didn't put their faith in Jesus. They needed their own encounter with Jesus. And so I start at the end of the story because I want to invite you on a journey. You know, Sunos exists to guide people into a lifelong, authentic re- relationship with Jesus. This is what we're about. And you'll hear stories about Jesus. You'll hear testimonies about Jesus. You'll hear us talk about him a lot. And for some, uh, that will be enough. It will be enough for you to begin to put your faith in Jesus. But others... You might need to wait a little longer. And I invite you on to the journey to have an encounter with Jesus. And I, and I trust that uh, you will. As we draw near to God, he draws near to us. That those who seek first the kingdom of God will find it. These are the promises that we have in the Bible. So let's jump into the story. We invite you on this journey. It says, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back again to Galilee. The Pharisees weren't happy with Jesus. They were religious leaders. They were the religious uh, elite. Jesus himself was a rabbi. He was a teacher. Uh, But there was a jealousy that was growing among the Pharisees because Jesus had all these followers, all these people that were talking about him. He was growing in popularity. And so they started to resent Jesus. Not only because he was popular and he was gaining more followers and becoming more famous than they were, but they were resenting him because the way he was going about this, he was breaking the rules. You see, the Pharisees, they had this law, the Torah, uh, that they tried to live by, and then they added all these other laws uh, that were intended to help them stay on the straight and narrow so that they could continue to be holy, so they continued to please God. And so they had rules after rules after rules. And as you, as you follow the story of Jesus through the Scripture, you realize that he's breaking rule after rule after rule. And as he's doing that, people, not just Jews but non-Jews, were flocking towards him, and so they were becoming jealous of, of him. They were jealous and they were resentful. He was gaining in popularity and he was breaking the rules. Have you ever been jealous at somebody else's success? Has it ever happened? I can say it's it's happened to me. I'm a very competitive person. If you know me, you know that this is true. Um, I like to compete and it makes me angry if I'm losing to somebody and they cheated. Can I get an amen? It's just, it's the worst. Um, and most of the time I'm angry because I think, why didn't I think of cheating ahead of time? Uh, I've been known to cut a few corners. Uh, but, but Jesus, he's just, they're, they're just bubbling with resentment towards Jesus because he seems to be successful and he's not playing by the rules. It is not okay. And so he, they're resentful. 
And because of this, Jesus says he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, if I could show you a picture of the map of that area at the time, you have Judea at the bottom of the map and you have Galilee at the top of the map. And Jesus had already made that journey once and he's going to do it another time. And so he's going from Galilee to Judea. And then the next line says, now he had to go through Samaria, which is true. The most direct path between Judea and Galilee was to go through Samaria. Samaria was in the middle. And so we had Judea at the bottom, Galilee at the top, Samaria in the middle. This was the most direct path. But ironically, the Jewish people never went through Samaria. In fact, they would always go around Samaria. And if you look at the last time Jesus made this journey, he also went around Samaria. And so when the texts tell us that he had to go through Samaria, and so he came to this town in Samaria called Sakar, when the text says he had to go through it, it's not because it was geographically convenient to go through it. In fact, the Jewish people thought it was more inconvenient to go through it because if you went through it, then you would become unclean because you would be associating with people who weren't living by the rules. You would be associating with people who were on the outside, not on the inside. And if you're familiar with the Samaritan background, Samaritans basically came about because they were Jews that started to um, intermarry with other religions and cultures. And so they became a bit of a mix ma- mi- mishmash of belief systems and ethnicity, Judaism and paganism coming together. They had built a temple on a different mountain than the one that the Jews had their temple on. And so they were seen as pagans and half-breeds, and didn't, they, they were people that didn't quite make the cut. In fact, they had a bit of a violent history over their disagreements. There was all these reasons why the Jewish people went around Samaria. And so they never went directly through. The first time, as I said, Jesus went around Samaria, but this time it says that he had to go through. Now, when, when the rest of the book of John, this is the story comes from the book of John, uh, uses this word, he had to go through, or literally uh, translated, it is necessary in the Greek language, which this was written in, it's only one word. And every time this one word is used, it is necessary It is talking about Jesus fulfilling the plans of God. It's talking about Jesus actually being obedient to God the Father, following the leading of the Holy Spirit. It was necessary because Jesus was living life on purpose. It was necessary because Jesus was living life on mission. It wasn't necessary because it was geographically necessary. It was necessary because God wanted to go into Samaria. And so Jesus goes into Samaria, and this is the wrong place. Can everybody say wrong place? This is the wrong place. Jesus had no business being there, but God wanted to do some business there. Jesus is living life on purpose. And so what happens in this story is not a coincidence. God planned for it. God wanted it to happen. And sometimes the things that we see as coincidences aren't coincidences. And I don't think in the same way that it's a coincidence that you and I are here together this morning. I don't think it's an accident. It was necessary. God is doing something on purpose. And so Jesus goes into Samaria. He goes to this well. And he sat down by the well when it was about noon. And when the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? 
his disciples had gone into town to buy food. So Jesus was alone here with the woman at the well. Jesus is breaking all the rules. In fact, if you want to understand why the disciples got so surprised later in the story when they came back and they said, what are you doing talking to this woman? This is what they were thinking, John said. The reason they were thinking that is because every other time in the Bible where there's a man alone with a woman at the well, they end up flirting and getting married. And so Jesus, being a Jew, coming into the wrong place, into Samaria, and then interacting with a woman at the well, would have been open to all sorts of accusations. Jesus wasn't afraid of being misunderstood. He wasn't afraid of being misunderstood because he was living life with purpose and mission. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So Jesus looks at her, asks her for a drink, and her response is, you're doing something wrong. This isn't supposed to happen. This is actually against the rules. You're acting in an unholy way. It's not right. Have you ever tried to correct God? Has God ever offended you and your rightness and your holiness? In fact, the woman in the story is right according to the rules, that Jesus is breaking the rules. In fact, the woman, the posture of the woman is in many ways more holy than the posture of Jesus if you wanted to find holy by following the rules. The woman here is acting more holy than Jesus. He's breaking all of these barriers and all of these rules. The moment Jesus had a conversation with her, an unclean woman, Jesus himself would have been unclean. He would no longer be fit to be a religious leader. In fact, many people couldn't wrap their heads around the idea that the Christ, the Messiah, the the one who was going to come would be unclean in this kind of way. But here's the question. Can God become unclean? It's interesting because they had all these rules that would make sure that they, were uncle- that, they, that, that, that they could stay clean and stay in right standing before God. But God himself comes in the person of Jesus, and he breaks all of these rules, and people are concerned about him becoming unclean. But it seems to me that Jesus had this conviction that he could make other people clean. It wasn't their uncleanliness that would be contagious and rub off on him. He had this conviction that where he went, he would impact their world. This woman is a Samaritan. This woman is a woman. And women and men in this time wouldn't have interacted in this way, let alone a religious man with a Samaritan woman. So he's in the wrong place, and he's with the wrong person. Can everybody say wrong person? This woman here is acting more holy than Jesus. She was being obedient to the religious and the cultural norms, and Jesus breaks those religion and cultural norms. And not only that, Not only was Jesus in the wrong place with the wrong person, he was there at the wrong time. Everybody say wrong time. It says it was about noon. A little tidbit in the story that we can just read over, but this is one of the most important parts of the story that we can't just pass over. Going to the well was actually a community event. People went to the well together. And in this culture, in this region, it it is very, very, very hot. And so people went in the well, not at noon, in the morning or the evening. Going to the well, they went to the well together. So going to the well by yourself wasn't something that typically would happen. That would be like saying, I'm going to the stampede by myself. 
People would say, that sounds weird. I'm going to the restaurant. I'm going to eat by myself. I'm going to the movies and I'm going, I know there's some of you that go to the movies yourself. Um, But these are community events and we would look at those things and say, it's kind of strange that somebody would do those community things by themselves. What's going on there? In that culture, the women would go to the well twice a day. They would go early in the morning or they would go in the evening. So why would she, the Samaritan woman, go to the well in the heat of the day, in the middle of the day, when everybody else is either going in the morning or the evening together? They're going as a community event. She's there at noon, and that's why she's alone, which means she probably wants to be alone or she has to be alone, which means that not only is she someone who's an outsider, To the Jewish people, she's also an outsider to her own people. Every morning and every evening, the community would go out to the well, and she would wait for them to come back, and then she would go by herself. Every day, she would go in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day. And during that long walk to the well, she would be reminded that she's rejected, that she's alone, that she didn't belong, that she's not accepted, that the choices of her life have caught up to her, And now she is living in the bed that she has made. She's walking this journey as a reminder of the constant condemnation that she wasn't good enough to be loved, and now she's alone. It was about noon. And I believe that it's about noon for some of you. You might be listening online, you might be here this morning, and you can relate to the woman that she was rejected, that she was alone, that she was looking for a sense of belonging and love and acceptance and found herself on a journey that she couldn't rewrite. And she was alone. Jesus in the wrong place, at the wrong time, with the wrong person. And it seems to me, if you read Scripture carefully, that Jesus is always in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person, but somehow he's always right. He's always right. And this is good news for us. But I think this is also part of the dilemma of a church community. We worship together, we learn together, we laugh together, we cry together, we have fun, we play games together, we do kickoffs together. In some ways, church is like a well. It's a community event that we come to. And there's nothing wrong with it. There's something beautiful about it. The problem is that when we stop caring about the people that aren't showing up at the well, that aren't part of the community, that are isolated, that are rejected, that are alone, that are abandoned, that are wondering, where do I belong? Is it too late for me? Can my story even be rewritten? And it's human nature, but sometimes as we gather as followers of Jesus in these community events and these faith events, and it doesn't happen on purpose, but I think it's human nature that we start to become inward and we forget that God has put us here for a purpose. And sometimes we can actually start to play the game in, the, in this world and have this definition of who is in and out and what holiness means and be careful of who we interact with. But Jesus was always in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people, and he was always right. Let's make sure we're not being more holy than Jesus. 
We need to create a well for people that are unacceptable to everyone else. We need to be in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. It's part of our calling to be followers of Jesus. And ironically, to do this, we don't probably need to change anything. We just need to change our perspective and our view and recognize that God is putting people in our path all the time, that it's not by accident, that it's on purpose, because God does mission and life on purpose. There's no coincidences. Jesus was at the well at noon. It wasn't a random event. And I'm convinced that Jesus still shows up to the well at noon. He still interrupts people that feel like outcasts or feel like they don't belong, who feel like they can't be loved and there isn't enough grace and forgiveness left for them. Jesus still shows up at noon. And if you're here this morning and you feel like, I can relate to that woman, this is good news. So Jesus asks this woman for a drink. And she says, how can you ask me for a drink? Do you know who I am? Do you know my story? Jesus, if you really knew who I was, you wouldn't be asking me for a drink. And so she she tries to tell Jesus who she is. And Jesus said, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman thinking Jesus is still talking literally. She, and, and John, he tells these stories and there's always double meanings in John's stories. And so she's thinking on a very physical, literal level. She says, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than her father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as also did his sons and livestock. Jesus answered the woman and said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so Jesus recognizes what the writers in the Bible had recognized all through history, that there's this human condition, there is this thirst, that there's this chasing after the wind, that there's this longing, these desires that we had. And Jesus acknowledges this in the human condition, says, I get it. This is what it's like to be human. You keep coming back to these wells looking for life, looking for everlasting life, looking for the fountain of youth. And if you keep going to these same wells, you will find you are always, always thirsty. But I designed you, I put a thirst in you, that I intend to satisfy. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. And the reason I put a blank there in the slide is because there's actually a word in the original manuscripts that isn't included in many translations, which I don't know why. The word is throughout the age. And I think it's an important part. Because what Jesus is saying, I think often what we assume Jesus is saying is, you know, Jesus is giving us everlasting life. He talks about eternal life at the end of the passage. But Jesus says, the water I give you, if you drink this, you will never thirst until the end of the age, which is the age to come when Jesus comes back and we live eternally with God forever. That's the coming age. Jesus says, the water I give you, if you drink it, you will never thirst till the end of the age, to the end of your life, to the end of this life expectancy. You can live a satisfied life, not someday, but today. In fact, if you grew up in the church, you've probably heard lots of talk about everlasting life and eternal life, and life forever is so important. It's part of the good news of Jesus. But Jesus came not just to give us life forever, but he also came to give us life today. And it's a life that he offers her to receive, not to earn. See, she thought 
Her quality of life was dependent on how she lived and the choices she made and whether she lived rightly enough. And because of her choices, she found herself on the outside living in and Jesus offers her this water to drink and all she has to do is receive it. This is what separates Jesus from every other religious leader in history. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion in history. Everywhere else you look, your life, your salvation, your identity, your security is something that you have to earn. But in the good news of Jesus, what he gives you isn't achieved, it's received. You can't achieve what he gives you, but you can receive it. Your status changes not because of who you are. Your status changes because of who Jesus is. Your status doesn't change because of what you've done. Your status changes because of what Jesus has done. And so Jesus gives us life so that we can receive it. The woman said to him, sir, give me, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty and have to keep coming here every day. Because every day I come here, I'm reminded again of who I am and the mistakes I've made and the things that I can undo. If you could just give me this water, I could end this cycle. What if there was a drink from a well that could forgive every sin, mistake you've ever made? What if there was a drink from the well that could rewrite every part of your story that you wish that you could undo? What if there was a drink from a well that could heal the brokenness and the longing and that unquenchable thirst that every human carries? Would you take it? Jesus said, the woman says to Jesus, give it to me so I don't have to keep doing this. Jesus offers her that water and the woman says, yes, but what do you say? And so Jesus says to her, go call your husband back. And when you're reading this, it seems like an abrupt change in the story, doesn't it? Like the whole conversation is going this way and they're getting somewhere and Jesus is like, Ugh. Jesus, like she just became vulnerable. She said, I wanted the water. And you're like, let's talk about something else. Uh, go call your husband back. Subject change. Uh, it seems very inconsiderate given the moment that is happening. I thought we were talking about water. I thought you asked me if I wanted water. And I said, yes. And then you started talking about something else. Has Jesus lost his ability to have a congruent, consistent, logical conversation? No. This is the same conversation. He's having the same conversation. He's actually talking about the same thing. He's actually addressing the well, the thirst that this woman is stuck in, the cycle that she's stuck in. She says, I have no husband, he re she replies. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you're now with is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Truth bomb. Jesus tells her the truth. And it's not inconsiderate. In fact, I truly believe that when Jesus tells us the truth, and we're willing to listen. He's telling us something we already intuitively know. Jesus isn't telling this woman anything she doesn't already know. As human beings, we have this incredible capacity to hide and lie to ourselves. But when Jesus speaks truth to us, he does it in such a loving, gracious, and inviting way, it's disarming. He doesn't tell her the truth to condemn her. She's already condemned. She's already judged. Jesus wants to tell her the truth because he wants her to know that I am here not because I don't know your story. I'm here because I do know your story. And here's her truth. She was married five times. We don't know why she was married five times. We can, have a, we can make some guesses and assumptions, but we know that marriage 
did not go well for her. You know, perhaps she got married the first time and she made some mistakes and she made some decisions that compromised her marriage and her husband decided to divorce her, which was the husband's right in this culture. And so she became the victim of that first divorce, maybe because of decisions that she made. Maybe she walked around with that sense of self-condemnation in that culture because if you had been divorced, you were now less than. And so she walked around with that self-condemnation. Maybe she brought that into her second marriage. And although that her second husband would have been somebody that was willing to love her and walk with her and, and see the best in her, she couldn't forgive herself because of what she did the first time. And so she plays that story out. She, allows, she doesn't allow herself to be in love. She thinks that she's unworthy and she doesn't even receive love. And then you see the cycle that begins to happen. She becomes this serial lover, always going back to this well to be accepted and to be loved, but maybe perhaps she doesn't even accept her love herself. And maybe every time that husband, the next husband, lets her go and divorces her, it's just, re, um, it's just recycling the same story that she's unlovable, that she's unacceptable, that nobody would actually accept her and love her if they actually got to know her. And so you could see how this would play out. And so she's probably given up on marriage. She's probably given up on love. She found a guy that was just willing to be with her that didn't have any expectation of getting married. Maybe he was an outcast too. Jesus tells her her story. And it's not news to her, but she was trying to hide it. What's your truth? What's your story? When Jesus tells you the truth, it's often something you already intuitively know, but you haven't wanted to actually deal with. And if someone has ever tried to speak truth to you, and they have pushed you out instead of invited you in, they haven't spoken that truth in the way of Jesus. Jesus has this powerful way with the wrong people at the wrong place, at the wrong time, to say something, to confront people, but in such a way that he invites them into a greater story. Jesus is here at the well, not because he screwed up and doesn't know the woman's story. He's here at the well exactly because he knows the woman's story, and he had to go there. It was necessary. It was God's plan, and it didn't happen by accident. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now the woman is trying to change the subject. Deflection. Uh, that's a little personal. My five husbands, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about theology. Let's talk about politics. Let's talk about the news. You know, it's, off, it, you know, it's interesting how we can talk about so many things that are actually a deflection because we don't want to talk about the one thing, which is our own vulnerability and our own story. This is what the woman is doing. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. This is what the, the Samaritans were arguing about with the Jews. You Samaritans worship what you don't know, but we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and truth. And so this woman, as she's talking about theology and getting into this debate, they're, they're disagreeing on the fundamental question. This woman is concerned about where you have to go to connect with God. And Jesus said there is a right order to the story, but the details don't matter. It's the end of the story that matters because God never intended to be worshipped in an institution or on that mountain or on this mountain or for us to split hairs about this or that. God always intended to break down these barriers and move out of the temple into the world. 
Jesus is saying that God is on the move. And although the story started here, it's not going to end there. And so you don't need to worry about going to that mountain because God's coming from the mountain to you. In fact, God is here at the well with you right now. And this is where we get to the climax of the story. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he's going to explain this. And Jesus said to her, I am he. Jesus is God. And for reasons that we don't have time to get into, when Jesus says, I am he, he is saying, I'm not just the Christ. I'm, not the, I'm just not the Messiah. I am actually God with flesh on. Case in point, you don't have to go there because God actually came to you. And this is the truth that wrecks the woman. God is there not in spite of her, but God is there because of her. God is there not because he doesn't know her. God is there actually because he does know her. God knows your story and he doesn't look away. Even when we run away, God doesn't look away. And Jesus chooses to reveal his identity as the Christ of the Messiah to her, the Samaritan woman who's even an outcast in and amongst her own people. She becomes the first person in John's story that gets to know Jesus' identity as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. All God is looking for is for women, men and women who will open their hearts and their lives to him. People who have no interest in religion or pretense or pretending, but will be honest with God and be honest with themselves and recognize that they have a need and have a thirst and they're willing to receive from Jesus. Who are willing to acknowledge that, God, I need you. God, I need healing. And we see in the story that there's a God. And if it's true, there's a God who knows us, who knows our story. And even though he knows our story, and maybe even because he knows our story, he invites us to be a part of his story. There are people who are outside of this place that we call SunWest, this community place that we gather and we worship to, who think they're not accepted here. Who think that God doesn't accept them. They've never been asked. They've never been invited. They think that God isn't for, them, for him, maybe primarily because people who have called themselves Christians don't seem to be for them. We've been hanging at the well every Sunday morning with the right people, the right place, at the right time, at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. But if we want to be who God wants us to be and follow the way of Jesus, we need to be with the wrong people at the wrong time in the wrong place. In fact, if this well, if this water is so good, we can't keep this to ourselves. Maybe you're here, maybe you're listening online and you feel rejected. You feel like you're on the outside looking in. You've never experienced the forgiveness and grace of Jesus that's talked about in this story. You've never believed that God could love you completely and unconditionally and look right at you and still want to be with you. Maybe you've experienced abandonment and rejection. I want you to know that Jesus was rejected too. That Jesus, the story of the gospel is that he was rejected so that we could be accepted. That he died so that we could have life. That he was resurrected on the third day so that we could know that there was nothing in this world that can take the love of God away from you. He came from you. He came for you. And what I love about Jesus is that he has a heart for people that are in the wrong place that are keeping the wrong company, that are seen as the wrong people. He has this outward focus that never seems to run out. And I believe that Jesus is here right now, and he's here with us. And he's here, if you're at home and you're listening online, he's there at home with you. He's letting you know right now that even though he sees you, he doesn't run from you. 
And perhaps you've never actually made the decision to receive that you've been actually trying to achieve. But the good news, the gospel, the forgiveness of God, the forgiveness of sins, the life that he offers us today and forever is a gift that we receive. And I want to invite you to close your eyes this morning uh, because you might be someone who has ever, never actually received that gift before. And I want to invite you to receive it. And again, you don't have to earn it. There's no pre-qualifications before you walked into this place this morning. But you need to receive it. And so if you can relate to this woman and you say, Jesus, I want that water. I never want to thirst again. I want that life. With our eyes closed, you could just pray a simple prayer with me. Jesus, I give my life to you. Jesus, I give my life to you. I receive your grace. I receive your forgiveness. I want to live my life for you. Just invite you to keep your eyes closed. If you're someone that prayed with me this morning, would you just put up your hand this morning? So right now, just put up your hand if you prayed that prayer this morning. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Mm. And Jesus, we thank you that you live life on purpose, that you came to seek and save the lost. We thank you that you have called us to come home. We thank you that you created us with a thirst and a hunger that nothing in this world could ever satisfy. And so we were restless until we found our rest in you. Lord, may we find our rest in you. Lord, we thank you that the love that you have for us is the love that you have for everyone. In the same way that you had your eyes open and your ears open for people that were rejected and lost, who weren't accepted, who were on the outside looking in, Lord, you went out to find them and to bring them in and to bring them home. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit is doing so that we too can live life on purpose. It was necessary that you went to Samaria, Lord, and it is necessary that we are here. Lord, we want to receive the grace and forgiveness and love you have for us and we want to give that away. May we do that. May we be people that are marked in the same way that you are, that we're willing to be in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people, Lord, because we know that you are right and the gospel is true. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to have a, to stand with us as we close in worship. So as we begin a new ministry year, I would invite you to come on the journey of following Jesus uh, with us and to go back to those people that we ended the story with. Some of you will listen to testimonies and sermons and things about Jesus and you're like, that's enough. I, I get it. That's enough for me. I can trust in Jesus because of that. But many of us journey with the community for a period of time and Jesus encounters us himself. Jesus speaks to us himself. 
And so I invite you to come along for the journey. If you are someone that uh, prayed uh, to receive Jesus into your life for the very first time this morning, I would love to chat with you. Um, I'll be available after the service. Prayer teams are also available. If you uh, have anything that you would uh, like to receive prayer for, we would love to pray for you. Uh, And then lastly, we have a... um, uh, barbecue happening with games and stuff outside. We encourage you to hang out, to stick around. Uh, if you stick around long enough, you can stay for the second service too. Uh, but you can uh, help yourself to, to the hot dogs, the barbecue, and all the games and stuff out there. Uh, let me just pray as before we head out. Um, yeah, Lord, we thank you again for your grace, for your love, for your uh, forgiveness. And we thank you for the way that you speak truth to our hearts. And we know intuitively, Lord, uh, that we have been going to wells trying to quench our thirst. And you have created us to find our, to have our thirst quenched in you. You created us for yourself, for relationship with you. So, Lord, it's our joy to receive your gift of forgiveness, your gift of life, and in turn to live our lives for you. And Lord, now we just ask that you would uh, be with us, bless this time as we connect in community um, over uh, this barbecue. Uh, Protect us from what we're about to eat. Um, (laughs) I don't know if I can say bless this food to our bodies, but we thank you for these hot dogs. Uh, And we just ask that uh, that walls will continue to break down as we uh, spend time together this afternoon. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Uh, All right. Uh, All that stuff is outside. And again, if you would like to receive prayer, we got prayer teams available at the front.